This is the first week of a new series. This is going to be our summer series and then bleeding actually into the month of September. In my mind, it is scheduled through the 14th of September, but Doug's smiling and I'm smiling because plans sometimes change. This week, we're gonna do two verses. Uh, So we're really gonna start with a bang and we're just gonna truck on through. I meant to figure out how long it would take us to go through the book of First Timothy if we did two, week, two verses at a clip, but I didn't. You can imagine, it'd be a long time. That's okay. Today, I've entitled this talk, The Characters, because basically we're just getting introduced to two of the main characters in the book, although there's some question marks even with, with those two. Before we do that, though, I want to um, begin with just kind of laying some groundwork for what this series is going to look like. So some notes on procedure. This is the summertime. Look around. It's a bit smaller than it usually is when SU is in session. I'm going to take full advantage of that by allowing some things to happen. Number one, I want you to prepare for interaction before, during, and after. I have in my mind to try to figure out, and actually when we planted the restoration project, I wanted to set this up where we preach and then we open it up for questions and then you guys get to ask questions, not in any sense of us being the experts as the people with the microphones know all the answers. That's, that's not the case at all. You guys could ask me a question right now that I have no idea what the answer is, but I'm comfortable saying that if you're comfortable hearing that. So I wanna try to begin to build that into our time here where it might become more of a, a teaching, an interactive teaching than you sit there and phase out for 25 to 30 minutes and then you wake back up when you eat the bread and, the, and drink the juice. So I want to try to prepare you for that, and I'm actually going to start the talk, or in the very near beginnings of the talk, I'm going to ask for some participation uh, in a question that might make you a little bit uncomfortable, so we'll see how far we get with that. Um, Number two, the way that we're going to proceed here with the biblical text, I just want to make a note in a way that doesn't label me as pretentious as possible. I've kind of gone through the text and done some translation work. So we aren't gonna be looking at the NIV or the ESV or the New American Standard or the the New Revised Standard Version. We're gonna be looking at kind of a a makeshift version. I wanna be upfront about that and allow you guys to, to call me on some stuff. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel and I'm definitely not trying to invoke my own heresies into the life of this church. You will also see at times some Greek text, hopefully in a different font, there, but there's a handful of folks that know Greek in the room, and I want to be able to encourage those people as well. I know it makes me look like a real that guy. It's not me trying to say like, <laughs> okay, Cause you know what I mean. That, but it's it's me trying to trying to help learn some stuff. Um, then finally, three, we're going to read and then we discuss again. I don't this I don't want this to be a monologue where I just talk for 20 minutes. I want this to be some, some dialogue, and that's how we're going to go about it. It's basically just going through verse by verse, and I'll pull out some things that I think are interesting and important for us to understand what Paul is doing as he's writing to, to Timothy. Uh, some notes on rationale. Number one, I believe that this book uh, is relevant for us as a church. Some of the things that are discussed in this particular letter uh, would be things like church practices, uh, church government. Now, don't be naive enough to think that this is like the blueprint for how church should be done because 
all Christians are reading the same texts, yet they arrive at very different conclusions when it comes to government. Some churches have a pastor CEO where their authoritative voice holds all the weight. Other uh, churches have an elder board where authority is spread out equally amongst a team of five or seven or how many elders and they make decisions together. Other churches are structured with a bishop or a deacon and then they have people under them. So there's, there's different ways that people understand this book. I do think that it has important information for us, especially as a new church, as we start to look at and work through who the elders are, who the deacons are, what those offices even entail, what the qualifications for those offices are. Uh, when we start to think about, we've already made a stance a little bit on women in ministry, and when we get to 1 Timothy 2, we're going to have to do some, some homework there on, on why Paul seems to be saying that women should be silent. And you'll know that uh, in some churches, they take that very literally, and they don't allow women to preach, and other churches take that, and they think that there's something else going on there. And we're going to try to work through those things. We weren't smart in picking this book because it's got landmines all over the place. Uh, but I think that that's a good thing because it's going to force us to work through some of those issues together. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be working through some issues together, uh, and it could be a beautiful thing. Number two, the reason why we landed on this book, I also believe that it's not just relevant for us as a new church or even as an old church. I think that it's relevant for us as individual believers struggling to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in this world. This is not going to be three and a half months of us figuring out what the polity looks like at the Restoration Project. This is going to be three and a half months of us working through this text in a way, hopefully, that, that pokes and prods and, and shapes and challenges us as, as individuals together. Okay, this is a picture of a church, a very nice church. I want to ask a question to you. In your mind... Where has the church, capital C, failed? Or in what areas does the capital C church need correcting? Josh, great. Yeah, that seems to be even a pretty clear teaching in James. Pure religion is this, that you care for the widows and the orphans and taking it a step farther into the people on the margins, homeless and uh, jobless and all those people and how the church can care for them better. Good. Anything else? Yeah. Not loving everyone. I think that we could all fill in the blanks with people that we don't, as a capital C church, love. And especially, I think that we could just talk about like the American evangelical church, if that further clarifies things in your minds. The, the, the American evangelical church of which we are a part and how we pick and choose who's in and who's out and sort of live accordingly. I'll leave it there for now. Yes, beautiful. We are very much known for the things that we stand in opposition to. Uh, and a lot of times the gospel gets missed. The gospel should be a positive presentation of we are for Jesus, we are for love, we are for mercy and forgiveness and all those things. Not to turn us into a group, because I know some people are uneasy with that, because it's like, ooh, we become the spineless and just very tolerant group. That I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive, where you can be able to call sin, sin, and to be loving and accepting and pushing forth the things that 
that you believe that are positive as opposed to the things that, that we're against. Growing up in a Christian school, it was, you're a Christian if you wear the right clothes and have the right face and say the right things and sing the right songs and go like this. Ah, that's how you know who the Christians are. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't have sex, you don't, or at least you don't get caught doing any of those things. That's who the real Christians are as opposed to a positive presentation of the gospel. Yep. Sure. Rhetorical question. How many of you have shared the gospel this week? And I'm not talking about, who is it, like St. Francis of Assisi, who has that great quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. <laughs> That's sort of true, but I mean, there's something about that too. But it, even, even in our context, I think that we begin to nuance that where we say, what does it even mean to share the gospel? Are my conversations with this person at the gym or at the lunch table or at this place where I'm, you know, being true to who I am, but not necessarily talking about the gospel, are they moments of evangelism or do I need to specifically invoke the name of Jesus into those conversations? You could even go one step farther too and, and look at other religions and see a level of devotion not mirrored in the church, whether that's observing calls to prayer or spending time in certain religious books. Uh, a lot of times we as Christians, we take that sort of stuff for granted and it becomes the thing that sits on our night shelf or uh, night shelf, nightstand, okay. Uh, it, it becomes the thing that's, that's over there that, that we have that's accessible to us, but we don't necessarily tap into it. Final thoughts, things where the church has failed or things where the church needs correction. Absolutely, yeah, and I think, um, some of this stuff is mirrored in some studies that have done. I know that I talk about this a lot, but I think that it fits in, in what, where we're headed. There's two books that I want to mention. One is called Unchristian. This was published early 2000s, maybe 02, 03, somewhere in there. They basically, uh, the Barna Group did a study of what non-Christians thought about Christians. So they polled the audience from the age of 18 to 29. A lot of our demographic, although I'm very comfortably outside of that demographic and that's okay, um, the things that they said about Christians were, we're judgmental, we're anti-gay, we're hypocritical, too political. Usually that uh, political motivation is, is geared in the conservative right-wing Republican uh, frame. Uh, we're sheltered and we're focused on conversion. So almost in opposition to the comment of we don't go out and evangelize. Some people see us as we're the folks that will put a track on a car window or we're the folks that will go to the grocery store and say things like, this is a direct quote, you look like you need this, here's a tract. Like your sweatpants make you seem ungodly or you need, you need these, I don't know. Like I see that you have um, not organic produce in your cart, I think that you need to meet Jesus. Um, so here, here's a tract. I don't know how that works, but like that's what the world thinks of us in a sense. So what, when people look in and see Christians or they see the church, they see all these different areas in which we have failed. Think of that list for a second and just think to yourself if that is true, not necessarily about you or about us, but about the capital C church. Does that stuff ring true to you? Hopefully you say yeah, but hopefully it's not just a very quick like, yes, that is who I am. 
that that is who Jesus has called me to be, and I will continue to be that until the day I die. Like, hopefully, we're not there. We know those people exist, but wouldn't it be great if as non-Christians looked in, they didn't see us as all of that. They saw us as something different. A different study was done. Uh, same group, a little bit later, I believe this book came out in 09 or 2010, and they were asking why people are leaving the church. So this isn't non-Christians looking in. This is why have Christians left the church? This doesn't necessarily mean that they're giving up on their faith, but it means that the institution of church has failed them in some regard, so much so that they decide to walk away. Some of these include things like the church is viewed as overprotective. And I think at least a handful of us can look back at our past and say, absolutely. Because we weren't allowed to wear this. We weren't allowed to listen to this. If anyone ever said this word or that word, then we would be viewed as heretics going straight to hell. We also see stuff like uh, the church being shallow in uh, their relationships and also in their depth of teaching uh, the church being anti-science. And here, this is just a commentary on how some uh, folks in that 18 to 29 age bracket specifically struggle with a literal reading of Genesis 1 through 3, maybe even a literal reading of Genesis 1 through 11. They don't feel as though the church allows them to think through those things, so they end up walking away. If I had a nickel for every student that calls themselves atheist or even non-Christian just on the simple fact that they can't buy into a literal reading of Genesis one and two, I'd probably have 25 cents. So it's not a lot, but it's, it's out there, okay? I don't teach a lot of students, but I mean, it is out there. It's a thought, usually a thought amongst like the, and I don't mean this in a, in a terrible way, like the intellectual crowd. A lot of times the church doesn't really pander to the intellectual crowd. They're repressive. This is particularly with regard to sexual ethics, uh, the church does not allow folks to express themselves, so people end up walking away. By the way, I'm not saying that all of these things are like good or that they're all absolutely correct and these are legit reasons for you to leave. This is not what I'm saying at all. This is why, uh, this is just the simple data of why people are, are leaving. And I think some of it does fit. Um, the church being exclusive, and I think we've even heard some of those resonances tonight where they don't accept this group or that group or this religious faith or that religious faith. We become the, we have all the answers and everyone else is, is going to hell. That becomes our, our message. And then finally, the church is, is viewing itself as doubtless. Doubts are bad. If you have them, you're anti-Jesus. You've got to put on the mask and not ask those questions. Even though you might be in the midst of a battle. It could be an intellectual battle where you might be wrestling with Genesis one through three, trying to figure out what that means. It could be though, probably more realistically, a battle where you keep praying for God to do something and he doesn't do it. Up the ante a bit. You keep praying for God to do something that you know and you have seen in his word that he wants to do and he doesn't do it. And the church says to you, don't ask that question. You're not allowed to ask that question because that's a sign of a lack of faith. So people begin to move themselves from, from the church. First Timothy is functionally 
asking some of these questions. It's a correspondence between Paul and Timothy who becomes functionally like his ambassador in Ephesus, trying to alleviate the tensions that are being brought on within the church due to false teaching. There's a couple of verses that paint this context in which we have to understand this letter. So in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4, it says, As I urge you when leaving for Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach different doctrine. Remember, Paul is like the apostle. Paul is the church planter par excellence, where he just goes around and plants these vibrant churches and brings them all sorts of great theology. Paul is the guy that has put together roughly 60-ish percent of the New Testament. I mean, Paul is a pretty heavy hitter when it comes to it. So when Paul leaves, certain people began to rise up in the congregation to say like, I would like to be a teacher. I would like to be the one. Let's try to spin this in this way or that way. So Paul throws Timothy over there and says, you need to watch this so that they don't teach different doctrines or so that they don't devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. So it's not just a thinking thing. It's actually, it's a devotion to a thing where their life begins to mirror the bad teachings that is the basis of their faith. It's an intellectual category that's matched with an ethical category where these people begin to devote themselves to these teachings, specifically to myths and endless genealogies. There's speculation on what that actually entails in this book. Uh, Paul doesn't really go into great detail. Most commentators would say it's because he doesn't have to. Timothy knows the deal. Paul has been there with him in this town. He knows what's going on, so he doesn't have to sketch this out. Remember, when we're reading the Old and New Testament, these correspondences are set within a specific historical context. If we strip the letters and the books of that, we miss the meaning. So this is Paul writing to Timothy about a specific context in a specific time concerning a specific people. In 1 Timothy 3, similar ideas uh, are, are brought to the fore again. Although I hope to come to you soon, this is Paul again saying, I wish that I could come there and I hope to come there. I'm writing these instructions to you, Timothy, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This letter is focused on bad teaching, devotion to these bad teachings, and Timothy is getting instructions on how to teach people to conduct themselves within the church. In chapter four, verse one and two, the spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith. They will devote themselves to deceiving spirits and the teachings taught by demons. That will be a fun week when we go in depth with what that is all about. But for now, the focus is on the teachings that aren't in accordance with the gospel that Paul has taught. Such teachings come from or come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Comments from the scholarly folk or the people that know more than you or I Gordon Fee writes, most scholars see the false teachers as the occasion of 1 Timothy, but argue that church order as the proper antidote to false teachers is the overriding purpose. The occasion is people are teaching bad stuff. 
And we have to structure the church in a way where the order of it will trump the bad teaching. Okay, so they take 1 Timothy as a church manual and the concern is set to set the church in order. This is Robert Wall who says, the theological crisis that occasions 1 Timothy is set out early in the letter in that first verse that we looked at, Paul's personal absence from Ephesus and so also the absence of his apostolic gifts. It intensifies the threat of heterodox teaching, different teaching. When Paul leaves, it allows that door to be opened up where people can come in and start teaching things that are not in accordance with what Paul had talked about previously. Not only that, um, but the congregation becomes accommodating of the culture of the time. Paul's not there to kind of keep things going in the right direction, so people begin going, going crazy. Finally, Luke Timothy Johnson says, without pausing for a thanksgiving, which you would expect after the first couple of verses, Paul just goes right on through and addresses the most pressing issue that's facing the community, namely the presence of elitist and intellectual members who seek to impose heteronymous norms, meaning different things. People are focusing on those things and how it's affecting the community of faith. All of these folks together seem to be echoing the same thing over and over and over. In order to understand this letter, you have to understand that the wrong people have taken the mic. The wrong people have started teaching things that do not go along with what Paul and or the apostles and or Jesus had been talking about. Timothy then becomes the guy who gets placed in this context to defend the proper teaching and the proper conduct of Christians and to set the church back in order. That's the introduction to the whole thing, not just to, to the talk. This, what well, kind of is to the talk too, but give me five minutes. Uh, we're only doing two verses, so I don't have a ton to say about it, but like understanding that context. And I think that's a context that we should pause, wrestle with a bit and place ourselves there too. Knowing that we are not above the law right here. Forget about the capital C church, like right here in this place, trying to figure out if, if our teachings cohere with the gospel of Christ trying to understand if our church government and our church structure fits in with something that's God honoring and beautiful and lovely and things that make Jesus smile or if we are in the wrong. This text is very dangerous for a new church plant because there's things on which we as a people are not really set and we're gonna meet some of those things as we go. But for now, the first two verses. From Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my genuine son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. The two main characters that show up here early on in the first two verses are Paul and Timothy. I have an asterisk next to Paul's name. I thought this was a good idea until I'm having to speak this out loud. A lot of folks uh, that study these books don't think that Paul actually wrote these books. They think that someone came along later, took on Paul's name to add some authority to their teaching and put themselves in Paul's shoes and deal with certain issues. I don't necessarily think that that's the case 
in this book here, uh, but I wanted to at least mention it. Why? I don't know. Probably it was a bad idea. But here we have Paul writing to Timothy. These are the two main characters. And what uh, we learn, even from these first two verses, are a couple of things. Number one, this is how letters were addressed back in the day. From this guy to this guy. But there's things that you can learn about the relationship between the sender and the sendee. First, you can see that Paul is asserting some authority in the sense that he's titling himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's almost stacking the deck to Timothy to say, hey, I'm gonna ask you to do a few things, but I want you to remember that I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Do what I tell you to do. So he's putting a little bit of emphasis on his status here. Not only is he an apostle of Christ Jesus, but he's writing by the command of God to Timothy to address a certain thing. It is softened though, when you look at Timothy and the address to Timothy is my genuine son in the faith. So what Paul's doing is saying, hey, um, I'm an apostle. God has commanded me to be in this post and to address this certain issue, but I'm writing to you and you are my genuine son. You are the one that I care about. You are the one that I'm entrusting with this task. I could have sent a lot of people to do this, to step in and become, in a sense, me to this congregation, but I'm sending you because I trust you, because I believe in you, because I've seen how effective you can be, because I know that you know your stuff, because I've seen your devotion, because I've watched you, because I know you, and because I believe in you. What these first two verses intimate are, there's a relationship between these two individuals. We see this throughout Acts, beginning in Acts 16 through Acts 20. These two, along with various others, they become like two peas in a pod almost. Paul and Timothy become partners in ministry. They're traveling all over the place together. They're teaching together. Uh, you can see Timothy as the young guy who's probably not as young as you think, but the young guy who's learning from Paul, the master rabbi teacher who is the apostle to the Gentiles. And we see how this allows growth and this allows Timothy to become his own man in the faith. They travel together, but Timothy is also often sent out on assignments to Thessalonia or to Philippi, I believe, or to these different places where Paul says, hey, I can't be in two places at one time, but I'm gonna send you out to do it. I'm gonna send you out to right the ship and to fix what needs to be fixed. Finally, Timothy co-sponsors six of Paul's letters. Uh, when Paul is doing that to and uh, from and to bit, Timothy gets thrown into the mix in 2 Corinthians, in Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. He becomes Paul's second writer. I always think that it's kind of a slap in the face when you have a book and it's like, buy so-and-so with such-and-such. Such. Like when a celebrity writes a book and you know, like the with person probably did all the work and the celebrity's just putting their name on it. I don't know if that's necessarily the case here, but there's, um, Timothy becomes like part two of Paul. Looking at that, I want to transition to this one question, this one single solitary question for us as a group tonight with regard to relationships. What about us? Meaning, who are you mentoring? 
yeah, this is a stretch. We're not dealing with Paul and Timothy here, but seeing that relationship and how vibrant it was and how it grew Timothy into the man that he became, who's discipling you? Who are you discipling? Who are the people in your life where you say, I'm investing in you? For some of us, we say very quickly, oh, that's my family. And that's great. Are there others in your life where you could say, I want to be a part of who you are and what you're doing. In this room, even now, as I look around, we have young life leaders all over the place. And I know that part of who you are is investing in these folks. Uh, my encouragement to you is to be intentional about that, to find those people where you have a voice and you have influence and you have an impact and just pour into them. For others in the room, it's your level of influence and um, impact is at school where you're the Christian on the floor, where people know who you are because of the things that you've stood up for in a positive way, where it's not just you tell everything that everybody, stuff that's wrong with the world, you have lived out a Christ honoring life and they see that and they want to be around you. And I'm saying capitalize on those moments, mentor those people, disciple those people, take them where they need to be. For others of you, it might be a moment where you don't feel as though you have anything to offer, to which I say, you're wrong. There is always someone looking up to you. There is always someone who wants to learn, maybe even from you. As we sit here and I pose that question, who's discipling you? I would imagine that most people in the room say no one. And I would imagine that most people in the room are discontent with that. Do something about it. If you have that burden and that desire, first, find someone that you can pour into. Second, find someone that will pour into you and will become that, that person. I can guarantee for most of the adults in the room, it would probably be the highlight of their month slash year to have a college student or a high school student come up to them and say, hey, I've seen how you, how you live. I've seen like, you know, just you from a distance. I respect you. Would you mind teaching me? Would you mind hanging out with me? Would you mind getting coffee with me? I can imagine how that would just revolutionize both people's lives. Please don't, for the sake of the church, sell yourself short and not allow yourselves these opportunities. As, as a small C church, we don't have much set up in the way of discipleship. We know it. We see it's a glaring omission. We're working on it. In the time, uh, for the time being, find those people and invest in them. To conclude, this book is set up with with problems, it's set up by stating, Timothy, I'm writing to you because there's things going on that I'm not excited about, uh, we need to fix them. We began this talk by listing off some things that we see in the church. I think that question is very easy to answer. It's easy to look outside and say, there's these five different things that we see as failures. It's, it's more difficult to be a person who encourages and to be a person who evokes change. The things that we listed are things that we as a group can actually do things about. 
not creating like a complete new way where people begin to see all Christians in a different light, but we can begin to be the counter evidence to the decisions that they've already made about Jesus and about the church and about the gospel. Even in small ways, we can be that group. I wanna read a text to you and we'll close with this. This is in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, hear these words, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us encourage one another. Don't be the voice in the crowd that just throws the stones and says, this is wrong and this is bad and this is the other thing and, and become the negative person in the group. Be an agent of change, understanding that yes, some of these problems still face us today, but don't just be the critic. It's too easy to be the critic. Be the one that changes things. One way to begin that change is to begin investing in the lives of people around you positively.